Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have on a very special guest. Today we have on Chuck Wisner. He's president of Wisner Consulting. His client list includes companies such as Google, Rivian, Apple, Tesla, Harvard Business School, Ford, and Chrysler. Chuck was a senior affiliated mediator with the Harvard Mediation Program and was among the first to be certified through the Mastering the Art of Professional Coaching Program at the Newfield Institute. He was also a specialist in organizational learning and leadership as an affiliate with MIT Center for Organizational Learning. And his new book, available now, is called The Art of Conscious Conversations, Transforming How We Talk, Listen, and Interact. Welcome, Chuck. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much. Thank you for Thank having you. me. Absolutely. And so in his book, Chuck wrote, I grew up with a racist step-grandfather. His unexamined assumptions, judgments, and prejudices seeped into my unconscious. My brain took into took in his stories about people of color, hook, line, and sinker. As a child, I didn't consciously choose to adapt his judgments, but in the context of my family, my grandfather's words had authority and his beliefs infused into mine. When I became aware of these harmful racist stories, I was surprised at how integrated, how ingrained they were. It took time and conscious effort to recognize and acknowledge this pattern and change my thinking, but I can still hear distant whispers of his, of his words in my mind. I know they aren't true, and I'm thankful that I'm free of them. It takes courage to inquire into our thoughts and beliefs. My inquiries were an eye-opener. Questions arose. Why did I feel insecure around certain people? Why did my mouth go dry when I was challenged? Why did I cry at one event and feel untouched by another? Why was I thinking one thing and saying something else? Is it possible what I believed was simply one way of seeing, looking, and feeling? Increasing our awareness of our thoughts while we are engaged in conversation with ourselves and others is an important first step toward having conscious conversations. So I love that. And as before we get into some of uh, kind of the more technical stuff, I mean, your background is really interesting. And I feel like a lot of our audience and just people obviously in general uh, can kind of identify with it because a lot of us, obviously all of us have backgrounds, right? And a lot of us come from uh, sort of places and from belief systems that are pretty kind of antithetical to values that maybe we have now, right? As adults. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and what is it that got you thinking about, okay, the importance of converse, conscious conversations and also the importance about belief systems, essentially how they affect our decisions, how they affect our happiness, and obviously in this case, how they affect our relationships. Well, okay. <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> so yeah, no, well, first I'd say I I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. So, and, and it to this day is a pretty backward conservative place. Um, so that that's that context around my grand grandfather, <clears throat> and and um, and partly because of that context, and my parents sent us off to Lutheran Sunday school. Uh, well, they went and had brunch or something, um, uh, and and that whole thing didn't sit well with me. And I actually got really early in my, when I was seventeen. I got interested in Eastern philosophy. And uh, then I started meditating when I was 18. And so that put me on a journey of interesting sort of different way of thinking because here was this conservative sort of backdrop and here was this Eastern thinking, which was all about mindfulness and awareness. And, and so that was the beginning of the journey. Um, and then I moved from there to Boston to go to architecture school. So I was trained as an architect, and then I practiced in Boston for uh, many years as a partner in a firm. And then, to make a long story short, we had a partner problem who was an alcoholic. Uh, we hired some help. The help that came in was a woman named Linda Reed, 
And because of my interest in philosophy and psychology, when Linda came in and helped manage us through this really difficult thing, conversation, um, I was like, how did she do that? That was like magic. <laughs> and so that sparked an interest in me. I mean, that sparked another curiosity in me. And we became friends and I started studying. And that's when I did the hard remediation work. And then I did the ontology of language work. And one thing led to another. I sort of like four years of retooling myself. And then I left architecture and everyone said, you're friggin' nuts. Mm -hmm. um, um, but I started a new career because, because it was sort of like a calling, really. And, and, and then in that study on language, that's where I woke up to the power of our <clears throat> thoughts, the power of our words and conversations. Mm -hmm. Wow, it's wow, really interesting. Yeah. As as far as uh, when you first uh, learned about Eastern philosophy, um, seventeen eighteen, uh, what was it exactly, or uh, could you maybe describe what, what was the feeling you had in terms of shifting from like that conservative view to that sort of Eastern philosophic view? Yeah, which is a little bit more yeah. holistic and all encompassing, right? As opposed to the rigidity of conservatism. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it was like it, it, for me viscerally I, I, it was like a, a a veil sort of being taken away you know so that i could see things that i could never see before or think about things in a way that i never thought of thought of them before and and that then you know, and then if you start meditating of course that's a whole new way of having a relationship with your own mind right um so that combination of those things um and I love a quote, one of my teachers, his name was Rafael Echeverria um, <clears throat> uh, from Newfield. He, he said, if I took you to, to uh, Alaska or the North Pole and we spent six months with Inuits, they have 27 names for snow. Mm -hmm. And you learn those names for snow. When we came back to Boston, you would never see snow the same way. And, I, and, and I, I think of the book that way, that I wanted to give people ways of thinking about words and conversations so that they couldn't just be in it innocently, but they actually could say, oh, that's how it works. And that's why I get screwed up or that's why I get, you know, uh, uh, stressed out about a certain thing. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's giving us distinction so we can hear and see and, and then act and, and speak differently. Mm -hmm. That makes sense? Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, definitely. It wow. gives a totally different, uh, fresh perspective to um, the dynamics of conversation as far as that goes. Right. And I'm curious, um, what are some of the problems that you've seen uh, people have when they're relating to each other, whether it's like in a business environment or let's say uh, personally uh, in terms of conversation? Yeah, I, I think for me, in well, in business, uh, we can talk about both. In business, uh, the big one of the biggest things I see and I still see is how we're trained as leaders to be smart. Of course, we're paid to have to be smart and know our business. Um, but but that notion of expertise also is a trap because then we fall into what's called knowingness. That mm -hmm. because we're a leader, we have to have the answer, and and that if we you know, we all have our opinions, but if you're a leader and you're speaking your opinion, but you're speaking your opinion as though it is the answer, then you're shutting down conversations. And this, I think this tendency for leaders to feel like they have to have the answer and then show up as a knower instead of a learner is, mm -hmm. is, a, is, a, is, a, is a big 
sort of it's, they're set up to do that basically because they're rewarded for raising their hand and having the answer you know right. um so that's a that's an interesting thing where i think our opinions whether in business or out of business our opinions we speak them and we hold them so dearly because they're part of our identity and our our egos are there right you are right i'm wrong i'm right you're wrong rather and and so that's the uh that's a trap yeah. right and uh people get so attached right to their identities and their expertise, right? That uh, they they almost can't they can't be wrong, essentially, right? It, it's like uh, people right. might even get into arguments at work, right? Holding on to like, oh no, I'm right, you're wrong, um, and they don't try to understand what the other person's perspective is. They're kind of married to their uh, to their point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and that that this, it's a trap because our ego and our identity is attached to our opinions, right? Well, let, let me say our uninvestigated opinions, right? If, if, if you have it and you hold it, so the analogy, the metaphor I like to use is, is like we can go into a conversation with our opinion, but it's like holding it with a fist. Mm-hmm. And so if you, I come into it with a fist and you come into it with a fist, we, we, we have battle, right? And then people get defensive and we're just standing there arguing our positions, but we don't deconstruct anything. We don't investigate our thoughts deep, more deeply, right? And so in the book, I talk about how can we, what are the ways and the four questions that I bring up, what are the ways that we can open our hand and go, yeah, I have an opinion, but this is why I have it. These are the standards I hold. This is the facts that matter. Here's how it affects me emotionally um, and power issues. And so we can actually deconstruct all of that. And then if we model that, it, it's actually encourages other people to sort of slowly open their hands, you know? And so we can have a, a much more, uh, a much, uh, I guess deeper is the right word, a much deeper conversation where we're actually getting under the opinion to what's feeding that. Right. And, you know, I've been having conversations with people lately. So I'm a psychotherapist. So I've been having conversations with other conversations with other therapists about, so what does it mean to be an expert in this field? So what's so interesting about that is oftentimes, and this is a little bit more psychoanalytic, where you would hang on and hold on dearly or deeply to these interpretations of what's going on with the other person, uh, where their problems stem from, what are the sort of resolutions mm-hmm. to them. So we, I, we've been having conversations about what it means to actually be an expert. And oftentimes, especially, I, I don't think that this is just prevalent to our generation, because I mean, this has always been the case. I mean, you, this is all, this is a business, right? Sure. So we need to be able sure. to market ourselves. So, but what's interesting is now with social media and the way that we have to kind of brand ourselves in the way, you know, so to speak, that we have to kind of seem as experts. So whether you're making videos on TikTok, you're writing a blog, you know, whatever it is, right? Uh, you're having a podcast. And so you have to seem like, you know, all of the answers. And the idea sometimes is that, well, what happens if I don't have all of the answers? Will I get clients? Will people take me seriously? Right. I mean, you know, the market <laughs> is saturated with therapists. You know, you could go on TikTok and get advice from God knows how many of them. So what does yeah. this mean for me, right? And so oftentimes, and this is something that Julia Galef calls uh, the soldier mindset, we kind of get entrenched in our thinking. And it's because we're defending ourselves, right? We're sort of keeping right. our clients kind of close to us. And we're saying, no, 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 don't go to this one, come to me, right? I'm the all knowing one. So I the conversation... 
Yeah, go ahead, yeah, Chuck. Yeah. I have the go answer. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I will, and I will save you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I will save you, right? So yeah, so some of the conversations that we've been having is about, you know, in terms of now vulnerability, is how is it that we can kind of keep our clients while accepting that we don't know everything? Because yes, even though we know diagnoses, we have obviously some fundamental fundamental understanding of theory. I mean, obviously we have to, but the point is that we don't know this specific person's problems exactly as they are. Right. And also we don't really know how to resolve them. What might be a great solution for one person might not necessarily be for another. And also resistance is what it is, not just because they're not doing what's best for them, but because there are trade-offs. And sometimes like, again, because we don't know everything that's going on in the person's mind for them, for that person, that trade-off might actually not be worth it, even though for us, it may be right. So going into this sort of notion of what it means to be an expert, what I find with my clients, and I'm sure other obviously people do too, is that the more open you are, you know, counterintuitively, right? The more open yeah. you are, and the more engaging you are in terms of this dialogue where you're fruitfully coming to something together, you know, in the dialect way. What happens is actually they tend to now view you as the expert. So, you know, as like the kind of young therapist that I was at a point, I was thinking like, oh my God, they're going to think I'm stupid. They're not going to want to come see me. Who's going to want to pay for this, right? But then what you're finding is in these discussions, the more you say you don't know, obviously there's a limit to this, uh, but the more yeah. you say you don't know, the more the person feels like they're engaging you on the same level. So these roles, right? And this is what I want to talk about now, uh, getting yeah. into stories, right? These roles that we take on, that this that right. an expert is this, right? A client or a patient is that a uh, subordinate is this right it's sort of very soldier like right very military like so can right. we talk a little bit about that about how stories affect us and essentially not only how stories are super rigid but how they're also very simplistic yeah yeah they're 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 simplistic and they're in, uh, complex at the same time because it's it's easy to latch onto one that's the simple part it's like because it makes us feel good or whether we got a good result that time but the stories that aren't serving us the stories that are harmful are much much more complex so it's it's then that's where the work is that's where the investigation begins right so in your story about being the expert psych psychologist or psychoanalyst um it, i often say to my clients look at because they come to me and and they are you're the expert you you know how to do this you've been doing it for 50 years for god's sake 25 but um uh but it's like I say, you know, if you want to change a, a, a habit or you want to change a behavior, um, if I said to you, okay, I have this, I have this magic switch and if I'd make the switch, you pay me $10,000 and you'll never do that again. Mm -hmm. Will you pay me? Of course I'll pay you. Well, <laughs> if that were true, I'd be a rich man. <laughs> but I say there's no magic switch. You know, we have to investigate. We have to get underneath. We have to ask questions. And so what you were doing in your shift from fear of being an expert to the ability to sort of be in conversation with your clients, you were doing that. You were helping them investigate. You were, I would suspect that you ended up asking more questions than you were telling them the answers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think what they appreciate about that is the exploration, just of getting to know them. So it's not so much about answers I'm finding. It's as they people just love to to have somebody just know them or get to know them and try to actually help them problem solve in a way that's not sort of cookie cutter, right? Because if you're yeah. looking at therapy in this very manualized <laughs> way, it sort of just seems like you're trying to make a buck and get, you know, the person get them out the door, right? Medicine right. does that and that's absolutely fine. I mean, you don't have to have a deeply personal relationship with your doctor, obviously, but obviously psychotherapy doesn't necessarily work 
work that way. When a person feels like they don't have a, that you don't have a deeply intimate understanding of their problem, they're never going to accept your solution. And most of the time, your solution is just going to be what everybody else has told them. And they're thinking already, it's like, well, this person doesn't understand me. Why is now this guy that I'm paying going to understand me? Yeah, yeah. And and so that, that um, ability to help them sort of look under their story or yeah. under the emotion they're feeling. Because I think in, in the book, I really say we, we, we forget that our emotions are real, but they're driven by our stories. Yeah. But whether conscious or unconscious, you know, we feel hurt or we feel angry. There's a story underneath there. And if we can investigate that story, we can untangle it and decide, you know, do I want to keep it? Do I want to change it? Do I want to transform it? And that that is... Um, the, the the work they have to do and what I can do is to guide them and what you can do is guide them. Yeah. What them. I, what I really love about this is that uh, I'm not to, you know, kind of go off the rails here, but there's uh, it, it's still relevant. Um, but so there's a client of mine and she really struggles with the kind of story she tells herself based on her relationship with her mother. So the idea mm. there is that nothing is really ever good enough. Right. So no matter what she does, it's like uh, there's always the goalpost. Right. It's always sort of being moved. It's like, oh, this is great. But then I don't have that. Oh, I finally yeah. have that. Yeah. But now that's missing something else. So the thinking there is that, you know, these stories of like who I am, what I'm capable of, you know, whatever it's sort of been implanted in me and now it's kind of hard for me to break out of. So in cognitive behavioral therapy therapy terms, what she does a lot of the times is she disqualifies the positive. So anything good that happens for whatever reason doesn't count. And there's a lot of black and white thinking, right? Where it's like, if I'm not doing like everything or if I don't have everything, whatever everything is, right? Because we don't really have a concept of what that is, right? It's like nothing else sort of matters. And what's been really interesting with her is that we've really been talking about, first of all, why that story was there in the first place and who benefited from it, you know? So for Mm -hmm. her, the thinking was like, well, you know, this is just how things are, right? So with standards, right? You talk about standards. So these are just what the standards should be. And my question was, okay, well, knowing what you know about, you know, your mom, about your parent, knowing that, you know, kind of she struggled with envy, uh, she struggled with giving many people credit, she struggled with her own self-esteem, right? But could it be maybe possible that there was some sort of ulterior motive behind this standard or this story? That it's not Mm -hmm. just so that, you know, oh, well, this is just the right way to live, or this is the right standard to have, that maybe she kind of benefited from you never feeling good about herself. about yourself. And so yeah. now as we kind of have this dialogue and again, this exploration, the thinking is like, yeah, you know, objectively speaking, like what is there in the world that tells me I shouldn't feel good about my life now? So, you know, I kind of moved to be near my friends, which I never thought I'd do because I was really career oriented. Uh, you know, I have these really great relationships with people who care about me. I'm kind of finally exploring the world in the way that I didn't before because I was really too afraid to take really significant risks outside of work. And, you know, I'm happier, right? I'm happier than I've ever been. But then I still have this nagging standard in the back of my mind and I'm not really yeah. sure what to do with that right and the main question is yes but how do we know that that should be the standard God. so yeah just... uh, yeah exactly thank you right and and to add to that it's something that uh, this is something i love in your book and uh if people really understand this this could be uh mine uh, like this could be life-changing essentially so um being aware that the stories that you tell yourself aren't essentially real like in the sense that you're you could be referring to real things but it's mm-hmm. like whatever whatever it is that you believe you look for evidence of essentially right and a lot of right. these stories that we tell ourselves are on autopilot it's not like like i i like to make this distinction probably other people have made this distinction as well i'm assuming but um there's a difference or a distinction between when thoughts come to you automatically right mm-hmm. and when you're actually in a sort of a brainstorming mode in the sense of like, oh, I'm in, I'm in sort of like a creative space right now, trying to maybe think of something. But uh, 
it it's distinct in the sense that those thoughts that come to you on autopilot, it, it just comes from essentially your your conditioning, your beliefs, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 feelings that you have, right? And it's it's interesting. It's like, well, if if the distinction is when I'm in this mode of uh, this automated mode, right? This isn't something that I'm choosing to think. Um, right. Why should I necessarily buy into these things that are coming up into awareness, right? Right. Uh, right. Which which is very interesting because a lot of people, before you know, maybe reading your book or even being aware of this, they probably don't know that uh they're bought like that they're essentially buying into these stories that they're telling themselves it's just like oh no these are my thoughts or this is me this yeah the is- standard is natural right like what i was saying about with my client right? yeah but when you become aware of it yeah. that that starts the process of sort of disentangling you uh from that and then all of a sudden you're like right. well well one second if if what i believe uh if i look for evidence of what it is that i believe uh or identify with things that i think about well, then that's interesting. Is it possible I could have another belief? Is it possible that I could do away with beliefs? Not necessarily, but you start to have these kinds of thoughts. Uh, right. Is it is it possible that um, uh, maybe I can identify with something else if I have to identify with something? If I must have like some sort of ego, right? Maybe mm-hmm. okay. Let's let's actually maybe I can design this ego uh, in some ways, right? It, it's mm-hmm. it's very fascinating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And the the, the um, idea of disidentification, you know, it, it's like, it's like they, we do operate on autopilot a lot. And there's a good thing because then I don't have to think about how to tie my shoe every time I want to tie my shoe or where I'm driving home. I don't have to really pay attention. Um, so that can serve us, but it often is serving us badly, especially in conversation where on autopilot, our story just shows up. And then, you know, our background conversation, the monkeys in our mind, right, are really what's feeding that. You know, mm-hmm. There's a negativity there often. And unless we shine the light on that, the light of awareness on that, and then go and do the investigation, because what, if, do I have a, like with, with your client, do I have, have this great desire for my mother to approve of me? Well, let's investigate that, you know, or I have a concern that I'm never doing things well enough. Let's investigate that, you know, and, right. and the authority issues am i am i um giving my power away or who am i who do i give what voices do i give authority to you know and then the standards issue which you you talked about which is huge i mean every every judgment we have is based on probably a standard we did not choose right Right. yeah and yeah, and a lot of times that comes up in relationships where, uh, so in therapy, I would ask my clients, like, do you guys ever talk to your partners about value systems? And oftentimes they're like, oh, ha, huh, that seems like so kind of like evident, right? Like so obvious. Like, yeah, I should probably <laughs> talk to them about values, right? And a lot of times we miss those important conversations where, and you talk about this as well, obviously, when we're thinking of different standards, like where people clash in conversation is because you have two different standards and people are sort of talking past each other, right? Where one person right. doesn't understand that they've done the wrong thing and, you know, that other person's standard, and then the other person doesn't get why they don't kind of understand it yeah so can we talk a little about a little yeah. bit about that how standards clash and how we often miss that with one another yeah I, and i think the, the the reason that there's two reasons that we we don't talk about them one is that we didn't probably 90 percent of our standards we did not consciously choose yeah so as we're growing up with our parents and our religious training and our schooling and our you know all that kind of stuff we sort of adopt standards and make sense to us and probably serve us at the time, 
they, you know, they service in some way, they make us safe or they make us feel like we're doing good work. Um, so there's that. And then the other pieces we get, we, 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 they're so obvious to us that they live in the background of our consciousness. Mm -hmm. So in the book, I'm saying, let's bring them forward so we can say in a conversation with a couple, they might be fighting over something and it's, it, and, and it gets nowhere. But as soon as we raise the issue, well, I'll give you the example my wife and I, you know, it, it, we've been married four years, so it's been a while that, that this has been true, but she likes to go to bed like a, 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 a maid. She likes to mm -hmm. clean up the kitchen and wake up like a queen. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I'd rather go to bed like a king and, and have to clean up in the morning, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, we could fight over that and we could really get upset about that. But if we just say, oh, wow, you just have a different standard. You have a different desire here and I have a different one. And then we go, we can laugh at it, laugh at it. And sometimes she wins and sometimes I win. Most of the time I just say, let's clean up because then we, you know, I, I get to get to experience what it feels like to go wake up like a king, you know? Yeah. So, and so that's a tiny little example, but boy, it, it escalates really quickly into more serious, more serious things, right? Values and morals and stuff like that. And what's great is by you um, trying to understand what it is her values are, right? It, it, I mean, she probably does this back with you, but assuming, let's say another person didn't, at least when mm -hmm. you try to understand them and you show that you're trying to understand them, they kind of lower their guard a little bit. That, that whole fighting for um, my side is right and your side is wrong thing, when, when they right. feel understood, it starts to build that rapport, right? And then right. that trust that comes with it. And then all of a sudden they're a little more open uh, to maybe something that you believe or that you're thinking. And then all of a sudden that changes the dynamic, right? Instead of like a, a fight or an argument, it becomes this sort of collaborative thing where uh, you might be able to integrate uh, both sides and then come out with more understanding and uh, peace uh, long-term essentially. Yeah, yeah. And it's in, in a way, if you can just say, well, instead of arguing about this or fighting, here's here's my here's the thinking underneath my emotional feeling of anger or, or whatever. Here's here's my thinking. And my standard is X. I think we should be the kids should be doing this or I think we should be treating people this way. or We should deal with our friends this way. By revealing that there's, a, there's some vulnerability there. Mm hmm because these standards are so much we're so much identified with them but if we can bring them into the open and open our hand and say here's my standard but that's a really great thing that invites other people then to do the same thing yeah i love yeah. that and and uh, if you don't so uh usually we tend to uh, also project right uh, our mm -hmm. like th this is the problem going back to storytelling we we project our feelings out there onto other people or or at least it it definitely comes off right what yeah. what could be a way uh or, or or some method that maybe somebody or maybe somebody in the audience would be able to sort of um silence that that storytelling in order to be how should i say it, uh more uh actively engaged and focused uh in that conversation without that uh background story running yeah um so there's two things that i like to sister up i didn't talk about uh one of them in the book have you guys ever heard of voice dialogue um no. uh, what's that <laughs> so well i was i worked with um uh th these two doctors 20 years ago or so 
and they had a process called voice dialogue. <clears throat> and what it what it is is it's recognizing. And by the way, 20 years later, now neuroscience is catching up and saying, yeah, this is what's happening. Mm -hmm. In our minds, we all have multiple personalities. Like we all have, there's archetypes, the critic, the judge, the hurt little boy, the hurt little girl, the, you know, so there's these archetypes, right? And the idea is that um, they, at some point, they served us well because they helped us deal with a difficult family situation, a difficult parent, or <clears throat> some other social issue so they served us well but as we mature and become adults right those voices are still inside of our mind and and uh and each of them can when something happens we get triggered the hurt little boy might surface up and take over me and go and you know be really super upset right and so the idea of voice dialogue is to be familiar with those those stronger voices that we have inside and to actually work with them hmm. and to actually, because each, each voice, each personality has its own ego and its yeah. own story. You know, I came alive when Chuck was five and I need to protect him from his grandfather. Mm -hmm. you know? So hmm. there's that whole notion of just becoming familiar with some of our uh, internal voices. And then the other piece that's in the book is, is the, deconstructing and becoming familiar with our inner dialogue. And I've done this exercise of the left hand, right hand column exercise, which is public and private conversations <clears throat> with hundreds of people. And it amazes me, the exercises to write a conversation of setting four mm -hmm. or five exchanges. You know, I said, she said, I said, she said, and then on the other side, write What you were feeling when, when both parties were, what you were thinking and feeling when both parties were talking. Huh. And what amazes me is how many people that's shocking to them, how negative and how loud those voices are mm -hmm. because it, we're so accustomed to it just being there. It's like running again, it's running in the background. Mm -hmm. Right. And so as soon as we put it on paper, we go, Holy shit. No, yeah. I, that was really a judgmental. I'm really like negative all over this conversation. Right. And, and that, and that's very common. It's very normal. But the idea is you can turn that negativity into gold because in that negativity is are your concerns, your desires, your judgments, your standards, and power issues. Yeah. Um, so, and, so, okay. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So would that work, especially in terms of like, <laughs> let's say we have somebody who has a, a deep mistrust of people generally, right? So mm -hmm. they have certain interpretations, right? So I think that's pretty much what we're talking about here. When you're talking, when you're having a conversation, we have like these stories, we not only tell ourselves about ourselves, but also obviously about other people. So we I have certain interpretations. Yeah. So we have certain interpretations of what people mean by what they say, right? And we always, I would say we frequently, and maybe not always, but we frequently misunderstand each other. And that's based on some of those core beliefs that we have about them, how they perceive us, what they expect of us etc right so how would you how would you address that with a person who has a deep mistrust of people and where their understanding is and i think this really fits in with the conversation about leadership right because sometimes and we had uh ryan uh, stelzer on shout out to him we talked about sort of like these bosses who essentially think of their workers as lazy right so it's a sort of mistrust yeah, yeah the idea is like well you know you guys are lazy so i have to crack the whip on you consistently if i don't do that you're not going to do your work right so how do we kind of start to tackle that and look at these interpretations especially with somebody who is consistently and chronically the 
offensive where they consistently see people as like mistrusting, uh, manipulative, you know, sort of divisive, right? Not seeing any of that within themselves, of course. Uh, but the interpretation is frequently, well, oh, you're trying to get away with something or you're trying to get one over me. I may not be able to figure out what it is, what your angle or what your motive is, but there's something definitely there. Yeah, yeah. So trust is such a big, big topic. We could spend a lot, a lot of time on it. Um, but, but I would say with someone like that, that had a big story of distrust, I would ask them to come up with two or three examples. G give me some examples that, that viscerally you, this feels, you know, distrustful, you feel distrusted or you don't trust somebody else. Mm -hmm. And because in that example, then we can do the deconstruction. We can say, well, let's, let's find some facts here. What actually happened? What actually in the conversation or in the relationship has happened in the past or yesterday or today that that can support or can, can ground or not ground your your uh, your uh, fear, mm -hmm. right? That's 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 a lot harder to do than it sounds because it it means you really have to go. Wait a minute, I do have a story, but did they ever do something? Or did they, oh, they said this, or they, the person might say to me, well, they said this to me. And I said, well, they said, um, is this the right way to go? And I'm saying, but is that a fact that supports your grounding of, no, of they don't trust you or you don't trust them or you can't trust them? And I would say no. So then, okay, so we, maybe we can exhaust that there are no facts, but then we go deeper and go, so what are you feeling? The emotional part. And then if they say, well, I feel X, then I would say, let's deconstruct that. Let's ask, what do you want out of this? What are the power, are there power issues? What are the standards? And just by the real examples is an easier way to, to take things apart and have some aha moments. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Question? Yeah, yeah. And then you know, and I'm also thinking now of comparing the standards, <clears throat> right? So because here's what I what happens oftentimes when I talk to people who are super defensive. You often find that their standard is kind of absurd, right? So what happens when they say, <laughs> "Well, somebody is lazy," they actually have plenty of evidence for it, but it also doesn't necessarily fit with the normal conception of what laziness is. So for them, what's lazy might not be lazy for somebody else, right? So when they say, "Oh no, yeah, right. we can go through the evidence. Oh my God, of course this guy's lazy." So we're expected to let's say work sixty hours a week, right? He doesn't want to do that he only wants to work 40 can you believe this lazy perk and so right. you know when you start to think about like what these terms mean you're like oh i understand we're getting now into different examples right so now when you look at the evidence of what is and isn't lazy now we're going back to the conversation of standards yeah yeah and, and with that person though so sorry with that person then you can have a conversation about uh 40 hours versus 60 hours yeah because if i was that person i say but when i was hired i was told it's a 40 hour a week 40 hour a week uh, yeah. gig, right? But now six months later, I'm being, I'm being uh, shunned and criticized because I'm not here, you know, 14 hours a day. Yeah. Um, that's a different conversation that I don't trust you or you're lazy, right? It's a much more productive conversation where we can get somewhere. Yeah. Right? It might even lead to like, well, when we hired you, we weren't honest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm out of here. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That 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 could be the case. Uh, but say in the case where it it isn't that, and just people are sort of assuming that you know pe people are being uh, lazy or uh, I can't trust this person. I mean, it kind of goes back to something we were talking about before. Uh, 
the ego is is insidious in the sense that like if you actually believe that you look for evidence of that right and so you you kind of uh, anytime anything any evidence outside of that reality outside of that view comes in you kind of nix it out because it doesn't go with that belief that that you have that's right, right. which which is just um i mean i know that the, it's definitely better though to to do uh, the method that you have in the book, right? Which is ask yourself these questions so this we can kind of suss out what's my evidence for this, what are my desires, you know? Um, it's essentially, like by outlining it and putting it on paper, you actually are able to uh, understand better what it is that's going on. Because again, things happen so automatically, or we be, we forget and we go on to the next thing. Yep. So by right. organizing our thoughts this way and then seeing that that insidious nature. Uh, that's definitely and not even insidious, actually, my bad, you, you always see what your uh, intentions are, and uh, maybe uh, try to gauge the intentions of others as well. And that that's definitely helpful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I, I like the analogy of, of, of uh, you know, this no, notion of awareness is primary, uh, you know, sh becoming a witness to your own thoughts is really a primary activity right mm -hmm. but if you if you can do that and then you can write some things down you're what you're doing is these personalities that might take over you're putting them aside and you're getting some perspective you know you're you're looking at yourself from up here going oh wow it's it's there is that thinking but incredibly we humans have this incredible capacity to be aware of our own thinking mm -hmm. which sets us apart from many other living things living animals um so that that is that separation, which is also gives us some separation from our ego and our identity, you know, and yeah. I don't ask anybody to give up their ego or identity, but I do is I ask them to look at it. Right. And <laughs> if you're going to give it up, do it consciously, not, not do it out of anger. Because you can do that and you can end up beating yourself up for six months because you now labeled yourself an asshole. Right. Right. <laughs> Plus, <laughs> Which which is really interesting is uh, if you are able to uh, quiet the ego or just be uh, put it aside, essentially, at least in conversation with someone, then th there can't be or you definitely minimize any sorts of uh, projections. You're actually really able to be fully there, listen to them and mm -hmm. not have this sort of impulse to either uh, jump at something they're saying uh or react essentially uh you're, you're actually able to then um if i could borrow this term just basically just to respond essentially instead of react so this right. way uh it also has sort of a different um uh i would say energetic sort of charge to it too absolutely uh, yeah yeah people even are so sensitive to like whatever even state of mind you're in I, like there's sort of like a uh, a transference that 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 occurs you know whether like if you're angry then the the words that uh come out uh they they they're coded with anger they have that uh, even tonally right. or something in your face or some sort of nonverbal cue but uh if you're actually legitimately uh calm then it has sort of a different flavor to it and then mm -hmm. people kind of feel that and then it, it's interesting cuz like conversations can go um, let's see if I could get this on camera, like any which way, like I imagine it like yeah. a tree, like with roots and you could take this path and like, this is the angry path. And if you started this way and then you go all this way, you, you could create like this chain of, uh, like, a, like a really horrible interaction essentially, or maybe even dissolve a relationship. But yeah. 
um, if if you take that more uh, harmonious path uh, and you're more aware of what's going on, uh, then of course you're going to have uh, long-term benefits. Um, I'll just add right. one extra thing. Like for example, if I had a, a if I ever had an argument with a, a friend before, right? And this is like, let's say my best friend, essentially. And um, I, I perceive this thing that he did as uh, it feels at the moment, like it's this unforgivable thing, or I feel like uh, very uh, charged about it. But then, yeah. yeah, but then at the same time, that thing that happened with my friend, it's literally like, it's this size, right? Yeah. But right, my friendship yeah. is... Yes, right. okay. it's like that much is going on so it's like I, then i think about it, i'm like is it really worth it to zero in on this get into that crazy argument with my friend or maybe be like you know what let's zoom out for a second and be like this is how i felt about what happened here uh what were you thinking right. when you did this right. uh what, what was your intention oh you were thinking that ah that's interesting because i was thinking this and then you start to you you unwind the tension yeah. You, yeah. You unwind the tension. Yeah. Yeah. You know, our, our bodies are way ahead of our thinking. Um, uh, and what I mean by that is you, something happens, we have an emotional reaction. And if we really learn to tune to into our bodies, it's going to tell us before our, before our prefrontal cortex kicks in and has us being defensive. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so that notion of being, let listening to your body as well because you know some people get stressed out you know like my mouth might dry out or people's shoulders might or people might get sick to their stomach those are all signs like to relax and go wait a minute i have a fear here and let, let's invent let me be open about that wow that really scares the hell out of me mm -hmm. you know and all of a sudden the conversation changes because i'm showing some vulnerability i'm willing to open my hand and reveal my thinking and that's very addictive. That's you know, well, addictive isn't the right word. That's very inviting right. to other people. Because yeah. if, if you can relax and be a bit vulnerable, whether they know it or not, your whole presence is broadcasting that. And they that's that's feels good. <laughs> right. So, so you guys Go ahead. Yeah. So you guys are referring to the collaborative form of conversation. So Chuck, can you get into yeah, the, I, yeah. we probably should have talked about this a little earlier. Can you get into the four <laughs> types of conversations? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we spent a lot of time on stories, which is okay yeah. because that's fundamental. Like if we don't do our work, our individual work, um, we can't listen better. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And so the second conversation, the collaborative conversation, is really the dance. It's the dance of advocacy and inquiry. It's like, I have a position, you have a position, we could do this, or we could do this, and we could find this, mm -hmm. right? That, that's the art of that conversation. And um, if I'm stuck on a story, or if I'm going with a position that I, my, I'm so identified with that I have to defend it, good luck. You can read all the books you want on listening. You can read all the books you want on collaboration and you won't be able to do it if you don't learn to investigate your own crap. Mm -hmm. Right. right? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. then when you do that conversation well, it's the dance where like, even in our hour together, the dance of sharing ideas and things, I, you, know, you guys are talking and an ideal bubbles up for me and then I share that and then a question bubbles up for you. That's mm -hmm. then that's that real ability we're really listening or we're sharing ideas in that space of open dialogue 
and David Bohm was a, his ideas around dialogue are fabulous. Um, that's when we flip into the creative conversation because then ideas start generating mm -hmm. and something, some idea might come up out of our <clears throat> conversation that none of us individually had in our heads mm -hmm. because we took, we had that open conversation where we're learning from each other. We're dancing with each other and ideas are bubbling up. And then all of a sudden there's a, Oh, we could do this together or we could do that together. Right. And that, mm -hmm. so the creative conversation is that, and it's also learning to trust our own intuitions. Mm -hmm. It's learning to be present, to listen more deeply to ourselves, to be in our bodies. That's part of creativity. But like I say, my favorite thing, I have a couple acres of land. My favorite thing is to go out there without a plan mm -hmm. and just like let no control. I'm not in control. I'm just going to go see what happens. And then either the chainsaw will talk to me or a tree will talk to me or the gardener will talk to me and I just start doing stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's a practice of just being in our creative space and trusting our minds and trusting our intuition. Sorry. Um, and <clears throat> so storytelling is sort of expanding how we think. Creativity is expansion. Creativity, uh, uh, collaboration is expansion. Creativity is expansion. And then the last conversation is commitment conversation. And that's a contraction. Hmm. Because it's going, okay, we've done all this great thinking together. We have great ideas. We have to make a decision. And mm -hmm. so the commitment conversation is just that, the promises we make to each other. Mm -hmm. And we do this day in and day out, but we do it unconsciously because it's so common, but we do it in many ways sloppily. Mm -hmm. And so learning this, how to make requests and say yes or say no or counteroffer um, means we can make better promises. And when we make better promises and we fulfill them, we build trust. Mm -hmm. so there's that there's that loop there right uh, i i suppose uh people run into <clears> problems <throat> of uh, uh, promising things that they can't uh commit to right like maybe maybe in order to people please or just to move on past that particular uh maybe conversation or instance yeah uh but it's mm -hmm. uh, as you're saying it's better to just be authentic like uh, no i don't think i could meet this by this deadline but let's work mm -hmm. towards maybe uh, uh, maybe setting it to this date and then I can have something uh, for you or we can have something for you. Um, uh, yeah, es essentially that, that is, that is interesting. Yeah. I, I could see uh, people being uh, people pleasery, I suppose, and um, avoiding commitments. Maybe there's other issues that kind of come into play, but yeah. Yeah. So it's not just people pleasing. It's also power issues, authority issues. Yeah. Cause you say, if you don't have psychological safety, say with your boss or with your team, right. And someone says, hey, can you do a report for Monday morning? And you aren't, you don't feel safe to say no, or mm -hmm. you don't say, feel safe to counter offer and say, gosh, you know, my weekend's sort of tied up with a family wedding. I don't have time. I can mm -hmm. give it to you by Tuesday. If you don't feel safe, you're going to say sure. And then you're going to suffer all weekend and probably deliver a crappy package on Monday morning. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of issues of power and whose voices we can say yes to, no to, counter offer to. Uh, the counteroffer move in converse, in requests and, and, and commitment conversations is a really underappreciated, underused uh, linguistic action. 
Yeah. Well, my favorite part about all the conversations and just because of what we do and what I do just on my own is the creative part. So I often talk about the show about the Wu-Tang Clan on Hulu because it's so cool. Uh, so what's what's really what's really cool about just how kind of how they formed and everything is that so it is a lot of creative creativity and creative conversations and dialogues. So what's so cool about that is that initially I'm not going to get into the whole story because it's a little bit too much. But the idea is the founder of uh, the Wu-Tang Clan, Rizzo, Bobby's character, Bobby. So the character who plays Bobby um, in the show, essentially, he goes off on his own and he creates this sort of character that doesn't really do much in the sort of in the music industry and then eventually like he kind of fades away and the record company dumps him and they're like okay man you know sorry just didn't work out right and he's thinking you know like wow man maybe maybe i need my brothers like maybe i need people with me to do this with me and this is sort of like you know speaking of ego because his ego kind of goes down right it's sort of mitigated by reality right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of mitigated by reality. Right. And then he realizes, okay, so here's this sort of talent around me. Right. And how do I kind of make it work in a way where we're all sort of, we're working kind of together, right. We're working together and there's a somewhat of a, what would you call it? Like a synchronicity of sorts, right? Like we work together and we, we create this thing and we don't really know who gets credit for what, right. It just sort of happens. And what you find a lot of times in the history of like the greatest sort of, uh, let's say minds or, you know, in terms of culture and productivity and let's say, you know, art, whatever you want to call it is, is that you do right. often find that when you do have these creations, it's really hard to tell who did what, right? Who contributed how and who was responsible for what, because there's so much going on and so many ideas going on in these conversations that again, it's hard to actually pinpoint it to a particular source. So when we start yeah. thinking about creativity, right? What would you say is sort of the ideal way to foster sort of creative dialogue, right? If there is one, right? How do we get to a point where now, you know, we stop thinking so much about who gets credit, right? Who is like, uh, who gets the most airtime? Uh, who is the leader, right? Who is sort of the the person in charge or whatever it is and we get to a point where like it's really the ideas and the art that matters most yeah yeah yeah, yeah. were you going to say something no 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 i was uh just agreeing with him <laughs> doing like Agree. okay okay yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay yeah um you know i think so you mentioned who gets the credit and how these things work you, you know we all know the term brainstorming but yeah. historically what has happened with that term is that we say, okay, let's do a brainstorm. And someone gets up on a whiteboard and draws something. I mean, I'm a big fan of drawing on whiteboards and mm-hmm. because I'm an architect, I do a lot of graphical stuff, graphics. Um, it's not only do it, but the first thing that comes out of someone's mouth is that'll never work. Mm-hmm. Right. That shuts down the conversation. So the creative conversation just goes right now yeah. we're in judgment. And then someone says, well, why wouldn't it work? You know, and then we're off on a tangent, right? Mm-hmm. And so the whole notion of, like I mentioned uh, David Bohm before, his his idea of dialogue, he, he was a, um, uh, oh, help me out here, he's a, a, a physicist. Well, he's a physicist, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> he studied quantum mechanics. That's right. So yeah. his whole notion of dialogue is literally, and I've done this with, with, with teams in tension, you're sitting in a circle, and the idea is everybody has a thought, everybody has an opinion, and you get to suspend your judgments, set them aside, but you get to speak your opinion, and no one gets to respond. No one gets to say, no, not a good idea. That'll never mm-hmm. work, right? Mm-hmm. And so you he- keep hearing these voices and voices, and what happens is there becomes this synergy in the room where people really start saying, oh, wow, there's another way I've never thought of it but that way. And there's another, wow, whoa. And that's when we're in that, that's when then the creative space is open because minds are opening instead of shutting down, right? And so, boy, to practice that, 
a leader really has to purposefully say, this is what we're going to do for a half an hour. We're just going to share ideas, but no one can judge. No one can shut anybody down. Mm. But that that's a, that's takes courage to do it because it's so out of the norm. But if you really want to foster uh, creative ideas, just let, let the ideas flow and let, let that sort of inner, you know, this is a much deeper subject, but if any of us think about where our best ideas come from, good luck finding that source. Right. Right. <laughs> and it, what it is, is when we are in our bodies and we are relaxed and we are not stressed and we're saying, wow, let's just dream. Let's wonder. I wonder what's possible. That's when ideas just bubble up, you know, because right. we're literally creating that space. Yeah, that's a genius structure. Yeah, like just literally saying, oh, uh, okay, you, you cannot give any uh, judgments like everybody will actually be stating their ideas in, in a circle right now for, for this time that we set out. That's, that's, I, I love it. I, I so uh, this, I guess I can't mention it. But this company that I work at, uh, generally yeah. speaking, we have good cohesion, like uh, there's, I wouldn't say there's an any particular issues with that but that that gave me an idea now i want to try that because that we don't really shut down ideas though but i mm -hmm. could see how setting out a time for that might make uh a lot of ideas come out as opposed to you only get a few out and then it just you know everybody starts right commenting on each idea well, that's presented. yeah yeah, yeah the, the trap there the trap there uh to be aware of is that the the, the power issues yeah Whether i was thinking that too Right, whether someone has more stripes than you or someone's the extrovert and you're the introvert or someone just tends to talk a lot or people give a certain voice, person's voice more power because they have more experience. So it's just, that's a dynamic to be super aware of because mm -hmm. the, the stripes and the, and the different ways for people to speak can shut down that, that conversation. Yeah. yeah, there was, just really quick. Yeah, no, well, let me just add one, well, I'm sorry, one sure, little sure, piece sure. I don't want to forget. Yeah. Um, in it, that practice, um, I, I'm, I'm joking with folks that my next book might be about the pain of meetings, but um, mm -hmm. literally to, to, to have a group of people and to say, okay, we all have a perspective on this problem, right? Let's hear those perspectives. Let's just hear your story, right? Mm -hmm. And then let's say, okay, let's collect, let's now collaborate on that. What do we know? What are the facts? What do we don't know? And then we go and that's where we allow that collaborative learning thing. And then we slip into creative what's possible. Now we say, okay, there's, there's five different ways. There's six different ways. You know, I mean, that's a very simple but purposeful way to lead teams and to guide people into a, a more uh, awake conversation. Right. And I think the point that you get at it, and I think it's super important, is that so many of us have ideas that could possibly be looked at as genius, but they don't get to be right because we don't necessarily have the ability, uh, the psychological safety to voice them. And so an example that comes mm -hmm. to mind, if you guys have ever watched the show on WeWork uh, with Adam Newman, uh, so Jared Leto plays him. So there's this really great scene with it where Adam, so the Adam Newman character, I mean, I'm sure he said this in real life, but it is dramatized, uh, where he says he calls himself the golden goose, right? He's like, I'm the golden goose. And one of the yeah. VCs says like, 
like, no, dude, you're not the golden goose. You just have fortitude. And so it's like this big aha moment in the show, right? Because what it says is that you're not really that brilliant. And a lot of us could have had these similar ideas, maybe even better ideas. But because this is such a tyrannical environment and you're kind of the only one in control here, you make all of the decisions. And yes, you're the one who kind of gets, you know, the venture capital or whatnot. But at the end of right. the day, right, it's only because you suppress other voices, right? That yes, of course, who else is going to do it? So what we often find is that, yeah, it's the ones who are the loudest talkers that get their ideas out. And I love that you're saying that we should cultivate a, a sort of culture, right? Where even if there is, let's say, a leader, right? Even if we do have sign companies are doing this now, where you have somebody that's, let's say, the head and like they're in charge and they ultimately make the final decision. Maybe it's based on the vote, maybe not, you know, whatever, either way might work. But the idea is that everybody's ideas are now taken seriously. It's not that everybody's ideas are implemented. That's not the point. It's just that what we see is that, again, for the most part, these people who are like, you know, uh, the kind of the robber barons of modern day, right? The CEOs. It's not so yeah. much that they're geniuses, right? I mean, there is something to that. I'm not, I'm sure a lot of them do sure. have very high IQs, but the point is to say that there's so many other people that have given a chance, they would have great ideas and they would maybe even run, make these companies run smoother than they do. Yeah. 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 And, 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 you know, the, it's ironic that some of the in, in institutions that are, that are ahead on this is like the army. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you heard about after action reviews, you know, What's that? and, and so, and they, they, had, they just had, they're having some recent ones. It literally says, okay, we just had a battle and we lost. I'm just making up a story, right? Yep. What they do is they gather the people that are involved, including the colonels and the generals, but all stripes are off. So all voices matter. All voices get to say, well, I was told to do X by this. And, you know, and it's, it, it's literally an after action review said, what happened? What are the facts that we can put on the table and say, why did so-and-so do X or how did this unfold? And the beauty of that is, and I'm sure it's not hard for the guys with a lot of stripes, the colonels and the generals, but the beauty of it is that it's known that say, okay, this is it. It's a safe territory. Let's yeah. get real here. Let's really talk about what happened. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that takes courage. Yeah, I love that. Totally. Especially if you're the guy with all the stripes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, in that kind of environment. Yeah, actually setting outside a, a structure where like that doesn't matter uh, for some set period of time. That, yeah, that's definitely uh, good. Uh, one thing yeah. that's um, interesting to me is like uh, how uh, the frame of mind somebody is in um, really contributes to uh, how they act in, in a team. Like in the sense of, like, I think it was this book, uh, I read it a long time ago. Uh, it's called, I think it's called Good to Great. Uh, mm -hmm. And they they outlined the different types of um, views uh, of the world. Like uh, one, uh, like it starts out from like a level zero group to level five. I, I kind of forget mm -hmm. it a little bit, but here's the, yeah. the basic gist where uh, first um, mentality, the first type of mentality, which is the lowest is, oh, uh, I suck and the world sucks. Like nobody's good. Then the yeah, next yeah. level is I'm I'm good, but everyone else sucks. <laughs> sucks. Okay. <laughs> then uh, our team is good, but every other team sucks. Other team, yes, right. right. And, th and then I think the last one is, oh, we're all great. <laughs> like every, everything that like um, we all contribute is great. And then I realized that like, these frames really matter, especially in teams, especially like with that story you're talking about with the uh, Wu-Tang, mm -hmm. like, yeah, you don't know who can, or maybe you do know who contributed what, but who gets like the credit and yeah. all of that, it kind of mm -hmm. doesn't matter because uh, in that team uh, framework, 
there's this emergent that comes out of that collaboration, right? That there's yeah. this thing bigger than each individual. And it, right. And yeah. yeah. It, it, super important. Yeah. yeah. And I would just add yeah, also in sports, in yeah. sports, just FYI, in sports, this is like the main thing. That's all I'll say. Mm -hmm. So it's the main yeah. thing. So if you have like teams that don't contribute, where, where each people, each person cares about their contribution, you'll have like a Lakers when Kobe Bryant was the star and like nobody else was doing well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the other point of that book, Great, Good to Great, that was really uh, surprising to the researchers because they didn't want to focus on the leaders. They wanted to focus on how did these companies and teams go from good to great. But a theme that kept came over and over and over and over again in their interviews was each leader knew they didn't have all the answers. Mm. They were not having, they didn't, weren't stuck in saying they had to know. And they were incredibly humble. Mm. meaning they valued their employees they valued the expertise of the people in the bus people in the team and their humility allowed them to learn from and let their team generate ideas and let their team come up with solutions and mm. that that's that notion of humility is underappreciated i think because we think of it as a weakness where it's actually a strength right yeah that's the thing yeah on the surface uh people who think that displaying that they don't know something uh is weakness that's interesting that actually when you do display that you don't necessarily know that you don't have all the answers uh and that right. maybe somebody else does and can contribute that and kind of play that role um yeah it just comes off incredibly authentic right whereas you keep the frame of i'm always right or i i will be the one with the solution even if i don't know what i'm doing uh, it, it has uh, long-term uh, negative effects in terms of uh, how, I mean, not that it matters how others perceive you, but it, it does in a, in a yeah. corporate structure. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're, they're like, oh, okay. Uh, this, this person is being authentic right now. I actually um, like this person more, uh, therefore uh, happy to work for them, with them, uh, with them as yeah. opposed, as opposed to Oh, uh, this person's really coming off rigid. This is like kind of a toxic uh, work environment. Doesn't listen to uh, new ideas, and it's kind of taken us down this uh, downward spiral. Yeah. 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 Well, the, you know, the opposite of you know, humility is arrogance. Right. Yeah. And that. Yeah. And by the way, you're that you that you can show up that way and not even be aware that you're showing up that way because you think you have to have the answer. Sorry. By the way, no, no, so I kind of as a joke, but also as a way to like kind of keep me humble. Uh, humble. I know you guys can't see the shirt, but it says I might I might be wrong, but it's highly unlikely. So my cousin actually got this shirt for me, right? So so her criticism I take because I love her. But what's funny about it, she's like, yeah, man, it's kind of like because you're kind of like that. You're kind of narcissistic at times, right? And I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. damn. I'm like, holy shit, right? But I kind of love that, right? And I wear this shirt sort of ironically, sort of not, but it's sort yeah. of to remind me like, hey, you can't do this. You can't be like this. Yeah, that's great. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. We, so, we, need all, we all need all the help we can get. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, Chuck, just, you know, before we start, uh, what? Oh, uh, just real quick. Okay. I, I have to say, yeah. I love that you mentioned, by the way, uh, Eckhart Tolle uh, in the book, or Tolle. Yeah, Eckhart Tolle, uh, yeah. Yeah, and Spiral Dynamics. I was, when I caught that, like, near the end, I'm like, oh, okay you, you don't i don't yeah. see that often that's 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 yeah. cool uh out of curiosity uh if you don't mind me asking sure. yeah. uh yeah. how how did you get into uh spiral dynamics or when did you first uh, discover that so i i i are you guys familiar with um ken wilbur why does that sound so familiar your right. name sounds so uh, familiar yeah. yeah he's a he's a really great thinker philosopher uh, and i studied with him uh 
15 years ago or so. Um, and he has a, he took, he introduced me to spiral dynamics because he had this notion of his, his, his development called the integral theory, which mm -hmm. is putting together objective, objective reality and subjective, uh, the subjective world, uh, too, too complex to go into. But, but then he introduced me to spiral dynamics because they had, they have tracked sort of how we've evolved as human beings and how our minds and social and cultural norms have evolved over time. And so he combines that with his theories. And that's where I, it's through Ken Wilber that I get introduced to uh, spiral dynamics. Yeah. Awesome. And I, cool. I just wrote an article. Did you try it again? My watch is asking, saying they didn't know what I was saying. Um, <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know she was listening. Um, They're always listening. I just, wrote, I just put an article in psychology today, uh, yesterday, it's um, about hope and truth and better conversations. And I mentioned in there this notion of having a bigger perspective on things, because a lot of things are not going well right now, that ultimately we are on this path of, of getting more and more conscious and awake as human beings, more tolerant, more all yeah. those things. And um, every time we make a leap forward, there's always a huge reaction, a negative reaction. But over, so it's like it's upward path, but there's an up and then there's a big reaction. And then it comes back to the middle and there's this up and down. Mm. And so I, I bring that into the article to say, look at, yeah, there's a lot of crap going on, but keep your perspective, keep a meta perspective and realize that if, if, the, if the positive growth is, 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 you know, good for humanity and more, being more conscious, that always wins over the fearful reactions that are fear, afraid of change. Mm, I love that. Totally. And so as we start wrapping wow. up, obviously, Chuck, we want to be mindful of, uh, of your time. Uh, I also have to ask, right, because I think I'd regret it if we didn't. So can you tell us about some of the wisdom and some of the insights you gained from the Dalai Lama when you met him? Ah, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I was partly there because I was diagnosed with leukemia 30 years ago. Oh, wow. um, and so one of my friends in the picture was my wife and a friend. Um, she also had a, a terminal diagnosis and she had since died. And oh, wow. so some of our conversations were about um, well-being and, and disease and, and, and health and death. Um, and I think getting a healthy, I think death can be a good teacher. And most of us think of it as, as we're afraid of it. Um, mm -hmm. But if we actually be, become more aware and awake to it, it can it can actually ground us in a way. So let's let's live life. You know, let's really uh, take take our day at a time and live life. So we had some good conversations about that, um, and he actually introduced us to his <clears throat> to his doctor, mm -hmm. who who we got to see twice, which was really really cool too. Um, so there was that piece, and then we did have some conversations about you know he's a very simple thinker i love his you know fundamentally it's about kindness and tolerance you know and he he models that too given the the, the immense uh, authority that he his voice carries and i'll tell you one funny story um mm -hmm. i my wife and i i was married before and i was in the middle of a divorce and um almost like i've had it with marriage i'm done and then I met my current wife, uh, coincidentally through my work, and our first date, um, where we were in public together, 
was to see the Dalai Lama at a very small venue in Cambridge. Mm. It was before he came, became a rock star. <laughs> and so we were with him and uh, my wife said, you know, our first date was to see you speak. And he looked to his, his, um, he had a, he had a, 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 a advisor with him and then he speaks pretty well English, but an advisor and, and someone to interpret and he looked at his advisor and said, what date <laughs> <laughs> and and when we told him what what date was he just went wow <laughs> <laughs> he had this huge uh laughter and he just he really got it and that was just a really fun moment and then and of course we had these lovely moments where we were touching and hugging and getting pictures taken so yeah wow it was great. Oh, man. yeah what a life experience so yeah. all right so how alan final questions for chuck before we wrap up Oh, yes. Uh, so, uh, Chuck, if we wanted to follow you, uh, follow your work, and, and of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that? Yeah, so the book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. The publisher is Barrett Kohler. So if you don't want to go through those commercial things, you can go to Barrett Kohler. Um, <clears throat> I am on Instagram, Chuck underscore Wisner. LinkedIn, same, sort, same thing, Chuck underscore Wisner. Um, and my website is Chuck wisner.com all right awesome chuck thank you this so much amazing. Coming, yeah i'm surprised we're yeah. even done but yeah. Hey, you know. yeah thank you it's thank great. you thank you so much for coming on thank, thank you, you for your time yeah. absolutely we'll talk to you soon man all right bye happy easter all right that was awesome okay so everyone if you want to follow us you can follow us at seize the moment podcast on facebook on instagram and on twitter where it sees underscore podcast like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on YouTube. YouTube. And thank you again so much for watching and see you next time.